Hello and welcome to the Latter-day Saints edition of Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. I'm Felix Salmon of Axios. I'm here with Anna Shemansky of Breaking Views. Hello. I'm here with Emily Peck of HuffPost. Hello. And we are going to talk about Latter-day Saints. They are much richer <laughs> than we thought they were. <laughs> We are going to talk about Boeing, which is in, I believe the technical term is a world of pain right now. They have stopped making their cash cow, the 737 MAX, for obvious reasons. We, What else are we going to talk about, Emily? The California law, AB5. AB5. We're going to talk about AB5 and what this means for anyone who's unfortunate enough to be a freelancer in California. Uh, we have a whole Slate Plus segment on books that we might recommend you read if you are in the mood for reading a book this holiday season. All that and more coming up on Slate Money. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Let's start with Boeing. I was reading on the internet this week that first quarter GDP is going to implode. That it was going to be like more than half a percentage point lower than everyone thought just because Boeing isn't making planes anymore. Boeing is a massive part of the American economy, and it seems to be going from atrocious to still really bad. Yeah, I mean, it's our largest manufacturing exporter. It employs a tremendous number of people. And then you also have to think of all of the suppliers who will also be affected by this. So, yeah, I mean, this is not a small deal. So, Emily, what's the this? What's the news this week? So this week, Boeing said it was suspending production of the 737 MAX, which, if you'll recall, is the plane that was involved in two fatal crashes back in March when 346 people died. And I don't know what took so long to stop making it, but... Now they're they're suspending production. They're not really saying when they expect to pick it back up again. And and yeah, it maybe throws the economy a little bit of a, another wrench in a sector that's already struggling. Plus, where would the sector being airplanes manufacturing manufacturing? Right. Yeah, yeah, and and also investment and exports, two major parts of GDP that have been have been weak. Yeah. So the question I have is. They were making a 737 MAX, which was clearly flawed in a deeply profound way. Mm-hmm. The obvious thing to me would be to stop making it while you work out how you're going to fix the flaws. And then come like January or so, you start making it again in a way where the flaws are fixed. And then that seems to be the opposite of what they did. They kept on making it even though they hadn't worked out how to fix the flaws. And now that they're getting to the point where they think they know how they might fix this, they stop making it. Yeah, I mean, I, I think part of the problem, I mean, I think initially it is going to hurt them so much in order to stop making this that I think they're trying everything they could to not have but to stop does, making it. how does making it help them? Because they're not selling it. I mean, that's a fair point in the sense of like they're just continuing to burn cash. But 
actually stopping making it and saying like we might not make this thing again like that's a that's an enormous step oh is that a real possibility uh, yeah I mean that's now. a very real possibility I mean yes it's certainly possible that they will just be able to fix it or they'll just rebrand it and name it something else but I mean there is going to be significantly more regulation of this as as well there should be right so it, it, no one exactly knows what is going to happen here and the other mystery which your colleague wrote about is Dan Primick why the CEO is still I the know. CEO it's amazing I didn't write his name down Mullenberg Mullenberg Dennis Mullenberg, Dennis Mullenberg. Dennis Mullenberg. I mean he stepped down as a executive chairman I think from the board right, right? but he's still in place as CEO I mean it's, we just talked a few weeks ago about a woman who isn't the CEO of a company anymore because she was mean to her workers in Slack. <laughs> this guy oversaw a company in which 346 people died under his watch, right? On this defective right. plane. He is still quite, the CEO. And it was quite clearly his fault. <laughs> yes. But if you look yeah. at the reporting, the, there's been a lot of excellent reporting from the Seattle Times and the Washington Post and the New York Times. A lot of people have been covering this, as, again, they should have done. Muhlenberg was the first CEO of Boeing to not come from the plane-making side of it. He came from the defense contractor side of it. And the defense contractor runs in a very different way that has fewer checks and balances. And he basically imported all of that kind of quick and dirty, we'll just get this done somehow, way of doing things into the plane-making side. And the fact that he's still there and the board hasn't fired him, Dan raises a good question. I have like one vague conceivable theory, but I want to know if either of you two have a theory. I don't have a theory. I mean, I, I think part of it is just a symptom of the problem with corporate governance that you've had at Boeing. I mean, th- that's another issue on Boeing, actually, that they used to have mostly engineers on their board. Now, I think like one, right. you know, so and and I think the fact that he's connected with defense contracts might also be related to the fact of how he's had a little bit more protection. I mean, I think, yeah, the same things that led to these fatal crashes and to Boeing's really, I thought it was slow in reacting mm-hmm. and, you know, apologizing, taking the planes off. The, everything that made all yeah, well, that possible is why reaction, the guy is still in charge. Right? Their first reaction was, oh, oh, our plane is fine. It's fine. Yeah, exactly. It's totally fine. Or, oh, no, it was the pilot's fault, basically, too, right? Yeah. yeah. The Always pilots were the... killed. Yeah, um, I, I mean, just terrible. And so that, yeah, it's a, it's a maybe a rotten company in some way. So Dan's theory, I mean, it weakly held, he has no idea either, <laughs> is, is that they just feel that they can't find anyone better. I don't really buy that. I feel like you could more or less throw a dart at the phone book yeah, and find someone better. My theory is that they know, and they have known for, you know, since March, they have been able to see this shitstorm coming. And they know how much bad news there has been still to come and probably still is still to come. And they just want to wait until the bad news is all out before they hire someone else. Uh, there's a possibility that that's I like true. That. I like that. So the new guy isn't tainted. So the new guy can come in and be the, you know, the grinning Dara Khosrowshahi right. type and say, hey. Not the one who has to go in front of Congress and be like, right, we, we keep killing people. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Apologies to all the people who died. And we did say we'll new guy. To do it, it again. It'll be a guy. It'll be a guy. Yeah. It'll, okay. I mean, but it's also an incredibly specialized and insular company. And I think the thing we've learned from Dennis Mullenberg is you can't even bring people across from other bits of the company to run by. You really do want a Boeing aircraft person to be running Boeing aircraft. And it wouldn't be surprise me if there are some relatively good candidates in that section. But now, of course, they're all tainted because they were all working for Boeing Aircraft right. when this happened. Yeah. They're not going to hire someone from Airbus, you know? Right, <laughs> Certainly right. not, yeah. Yeah, that's interesting, be too. Because outsider. Yeah, because, well, 
slightly off topic, but like Airbus is probably not going to benefit from this. Mostly, which, I, which is interesting because I saw some people like initially when Boeing, they're like, oh, Airbus must be super happy. And you're like, Airbus is not going to be happy. Like they have no ability to make up for this like lost capacity. Like They, they don't have, have the planes? Or? They have eight years of backlogs of things they have to make. Oh, no. So they they can't just like start making more to fill this. So what is most likely going to happen is just that we aren't going to have enough planes and travel costs are going to go up. I saw some airlines were affected by this, too. Yeah, Grounding flights. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, so there are a bunch of routes I know because I happen to live on one of them that have just stopped flying because they were being served by the 737 MAX and then they the airlines grounded their 737 MAX and now they're like, well, we didn't, we can't fly that route anymore. So sorry, you're shit out of luck. Yeah, it's like incredibly capital intensive. <laughs> it's not something you can just, someone else can just quickly start doing. What an absolute failure of regulation. I mean, yes, Boeing is to blame and Mullenberg is to blame here, but the FAA really fell down. And, and look at the ripple effects across an entire industry. It's going to affect not only this company, but their 600 suppliers, airlines, and then people who fly. I mean, it's really something that connected to all these other pieces of the economy should be well-regulated. This, this shouldn't have happened at all. No, I mean, when you have a national champion, I mean, one of the other problems with national champions often is the fact you don't really have any competition. You're, you have all of these kind of cozy connections with government, and so bad things can happen. But in theory, if you had proper regulations, you would you'd be able to be more on top of them because they essentially have, you know, so much control of this industry. But this is not the first time this has happened with a national champion, right? I mean, it's it's not that uncommon. What's a national champion? It's basically, Anna? I mean, like, it's traditionally when you have a certain business that the government, it's, it's not technically state-owned, but it is very state, like, supported. Mm-hmm. And this is something in the emerging markets. I mean, something in emerging markets is also state-owned. But you often have these national champions where essentially the government is going to ensure that they do well. Like a General Motors or something? Or? Uh, I mean, I mean, the thing with the auto industry is at least you've always had a few, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. But but yeah, Boeing is like in, in the U.S. is one of the few companies that you probably would really call U.S. national champion. And that's one of the reasons why it doesn't matter how bad things get for them. They're not going to go out of business. Like they will get bailed out. They will get bailed out because they have defense contracts. And that's also part of the problem, too. And when you have a company that is also it's essentially too big to fail. So, you know, it's not they, overly surprising. Uh, tell me about like the finances. Are they going to lose? Their margins are going money? to decline significantly. Yeah. I mean, like in, in, they should be lose or they will burn slightly less cash because they've been burning a ton of cash. But it also they've the, been burning cash since the seven thirty seven stopped selling. Basically. Yeah, well, not even before that, but yeah, and and also part of the way that they account for like their costs now they're going like they spread it over the amount of planes, and because now fewer planes will have made, that's actually going to make their books look worse. It's a bit of an accounting thing, but it mm-hmm. will affect how they're valued. I mean, they've already lost like I think fifty billion in market cap, and it's not inconceivable that they could lose. Twenty percent. I mean, like this is not a small thing. Right, and this is and this is an industry with basically unsub, you know, unhurdleable barriers to entry. Yes. <laughs> You're not going to have like the, startup exactly, making your. Yeah. It's not, it's not like, it's two not guys like, in their garage are not making the next the, Boeing. Yeah, like, <laughs> there are only two. I mean, I, I mean, Brazil kind of has one, but really, there are only two aircraft yeah. manufacturers on planet Earth, and and you just have to kind of. Pick one of them and go with it. Right. Well, if I was a country, I would make my own airplane company. What? So that's what Brazil did <laughs> with with Embraer. Uh-huh. And then, wait, Bombardier's Canadian? So. Yeah. yeah. So there's a couple of, like, slightly smaller ones. But in terms of the big, long-haul 
airplanes where you you know fly across oceans. Mm -hmm. I think you're basically stuck with yeah. Boeing and it's Airbus. It's just because obviously the capital intensity and also like the contracts that you need to have, the relationships you need to build. It's just not an industry that you can get. And you need right. to provide entire fleets. Like this yeah. is the other reason why airlines are not just buying Airbus, quite aside from the fact that Airbus doesn't have the planes to sell them, is that you want your whole fleet to be all Boeing. And that way, all of your pilots can fly all of the exactly, planes, right. and it all, it's all interoperable. And that's what caused the yeah. 737 MAX problem in the first place, is they had this old workhorse called the 737, which was reaching the end of its natural life. And they wanted to be able to replace it with a plane that didn't require all of the pilots in all of the airlines in all of the world to get retrained. And that didn't work very well. Yeah. But maybe this is all part of your ultimate plan, Felix, which is to stop <laughs> private jets. So maybe this is more like stop all the jets. Stop all the jets. And this like, is to exactly. solve climate like, change. Maybe this is, even, is ultimately a good thing. Even like, better. Greta is totally on board with <laughs> this. Greta is on board. Even better with banning, banning private jets is ban 737s. <laughs> 737s have way more carbon That's footprint true. than all of yeah, the private jets see? in the world combined. This is yeah. good. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Emily. Hi. AB5. Do you know what it even stands for? Assembly Bill, something like that? Assembly Bill 5. It's a California law that was passed on September 11th. And it was meant to target Uber and Lyft. And it wants to force these companies to treat their workers not as contractors, but as employees is the idea. Like, you can't have fake contractor workers that are actually just employees. Um, so Uber and Lyft are fighting it. They're they're spending millions of dollars. They want to do some kind of like uh, statewide referendum next year. But the law is now in place, so they Law's have to comply place. with it for the time being. But they're not going to. They're just going to, I think, ride it out and try and fight it from Un what I read. Unlike Vox Media. So, yeah. So the news this week was Vox Media, which owns the sports site SB Nation, is sort of letting go all of its sports bloggers because according to AB5, this law, if you employ a freelance writer, if they write more than 35 pieces for you in a year, then you are actually considered an employee. So Vox didn't want to do that and they have all these bloggers. So they said, you're all done and we'll, we'll figure out a new way to do this with fewer people. This is what, you know, the, when you're talking about labor regulations, like there are always winners and losers. It's not simple, right? Because you understand why people would, some people would be in favor of this law. But the downside of it is that you're always going to have probably more people who then won't be able to be employed. Now, those who are employed, like the new jobs they'll probably create at Vox to do this, will probably be better jobs than the ones they had before, but there'll just be far fewer of them. Mm -hmm. It seems fine to me that these people, I mean, it's terrible to be laid off, really terrible, but... If Vox has to raise its pay and standards and the people that they do hire have more protections, it seems ultimately better. I can tell you as someone I use, I spent five year, five or six years freelancing mostly for Euro money, basically with one main employer. I spent two years freelancing for Condé Nast Portfolio. I was their finance blogger, basically with one employer. I think I did like a tiny bit of work for other people. 
And that idea of working more or less full time for a single employer on a freelance basis, it can actually work out for you in various ways. And there are reasons why some people would like to do that and would like to be in that situation. Now, I'm not saying that like it's it's better than being an employee, but it's different and, you know, different people like different things. And I, it does worry me a little bit that that is no longer an option in California. Well, yeah. it is if you write fewer than 35 pieces. Right, but that's not a full-time job, is it? If you are doing something full-time for a company, they should you should be treated as a full-time worker. Like, I had a job at American Lawyer, and for the first two years, I was like a contractor, I guess, mm-hmm. but it was a full-time job. Right. I had no other job. Right. So I would bill them, I think, once a month or twice a month or something. And like, I worked alongside people who had health benefits. I had none. I worked alongside people who were putting away for their 401k. I couldn't do that. Like, it was just obviously yeah. not it's And I correct. do think things have changed. Like, and the, since, the law did it, change. our day yes. as well. The other thing, no, the other big thing that has changed is the cost of private health insurance has just been yeah. going up mm-hmm. and up and up to the point at which like it becomes you need to persuade your employer to pay so much extra to cover things like health insurance that it it feels weird like on some level economically speaking employers should pay more for freelancers than they do for full-timers but they never actually do this is actually a good point so it's like the actual problem is that in the U.S., our employers are the ones taking care of things and in a lot of other countries is a matter of policy, like health care. So in a way, like, the target of the law is a little backwards. Like, if you, instead of targeted Uber and Lyft and force them to change the way they treat their employees, you could pass a state law that raises the minimum wage no matter what industry or how you work and give everyone health care. And then it doesn't matter that much how the company, what, what kind of benefits the company gives you if you get paid leave through a public policy, if you get sick leave through a public policy. I, I actually really agree with that because I do think having a system where you're not putting this burden on businesses then right. allows you to have a much more open labor market. And having more open labor market is going to lead to almost like more business development, whereas what they're doing right now. And again, you understand because it, it, it is people are very sympathetic when they're saying I'm working all these hours and I don't have access to health care. But then the whole thing is like, right, but the company is not going to be able to give health care to all those people. So... Just, again, one more point of that problem of that's why companies should not be doing that. Emily, isn't this amazing? Like, we have now officially reached the point where Anna is on Slate Money agitating for Medicare for all. Uh, Not necessarily Medicare (laughs) for all. I just, yeah, I just think that you... uh, Some kind of universal government provided health care. I've always thought that. I've always thought that you need some type of... It doesn't make any sense. And also because it's like it doesn't help business. (laughs) Like I mean, it doesn't, like... doesn't make tremendous amount of sense. It actually puts a burden on U.S. companies in comparison to others. And, you know, and especially smaller companies, too. I don't know, does this bill apply to everyone or is it one of those like 50 or more kind of things? No, Anna, it does not apply (laughs) to everyone. First, there's like a three-part test to see like if the person actually would count as an employee. So if it's like, um, like you bring in a plumber once a month or something like that for your business, that's outside the regular course of your business, they wouldn't count. And then there are carve-outs for doctors, real estate agents, uh, lawyers, and some kinds of therapists, but not all of them, because there were some people complaining. And there's a Wall Street Journal piece where, like, truckers and therapists were getting very upset. Truckers are very upset about this because a lot of them are contractors. They don't work for any particular company. And there's a big feeling like they're going to lose some independence. Right. Yeah. And I mean, and that is always the other issue, too, is that, you know, you do have and you even heard this from like Uber and Lyft drivers that said like, well, you know, some of them like they, they like the flexibility. They don't necessarily want 
to have to be told, okay, you just have to drive at this time, this time. And it's the same thing with freelancers as well. I mean, it's there. there is a little bit of that push and pull. And the problem with these laws is that they're kind of a one size fits all. And yeah, they might fix one part of the problem, but then it will create so, others. So Emily, what's the rule for Uber and Lyft? How much do I need to be working for Uber before this law kicks in? Um, that's a good question. The, the three-part test is <laughs> you have to be free from the control of the company. So mm-hmm. That's so, not an so, hourly requirement. Right. I don't and know Uber what the hourly requirement like, is. Te- like Uber can't tell me that I have to drive. Right. Right now you drive when you want to right. drive. So I'm in that sense, I'm free from their control. Right. right. And then the second part would be outside the usual course of business, which unbelievably Uber argues that their drivers right, are right. outside the course <laughs> yeah. of usual business because they're a tech company. Yeah, we, that was, that was, I mean, this is this is the, the let's quote Dan Trimack edition of Slate Money, it seems. But Dan interviewed Dara on... Axios on HBO, and he was like, are you seriously saying that, like, drivers are not part of the course of your business? And Dara's like, no, we're we're a platform. Unbelievable. (laughs) That is just so unbelievable. And then the third part of the test is, like, if they're in, like, a trade, like the lawyers and the doctors, like, or the plumber who comes and fixes your your offices or something. But in terms of the company itself, like, does it have to have a certain number of employees before it matters? You guys, I don't know. Okay, no worries. (laughs) Why don't you know everything about this? Sorry. Emily, uh, yeah. you're fired, seriously. Like, <laughs> you need to know everything. I can't be fired, Felix, because I'm contractor. <laughs> <laughs> <for> slave. <Damn. laughs> I'm actually not even a contractor. I mean, it's it's an interesting question, though. Like, if we had a Slate Money co-host in California who wasn't employed by Slate and who came on more than 35 times per year because we have 52 weeks per year, mm-hmm. they would be covered by this. Yeah. I mean, and this is an issue where you're having people in California saying, you know, we're going to, we probably might get a little screwed here because companies will just not hire people in California because yeah. they don't want to deal with it. Yeah. Maybe that's the silver lining to this one is we'll finally have reasons for people to move out of California and move to Bentonville, Arkansas instead, which <laughs> I've, I've been reading up because of the the great why is this interesting email newsletter has been writing about Bentonville, Arkansas and how it's this new sort of urbanist paradise and full of like hipster hotels and restaurants and the Crystal Bridges Art Museum and it's all cool and trendy these days. Because of Walmart? Walmart has decided that it needs to be 21st century digital focus, blah, blah, blah. And it needs to attract the cool, like, engineering hipster types. And so it's now turned Bentonville into a cool hipster town to live in. And, and you know, as much as, like, I don't love Walmart in certain ways, but it's not the worst thing in the world. If, if you have larger companies, if you don't have some of these cities doing the things that they probably should be doing, if you have companies pushing them and saying, like, okay, we're going to invest in this type of infrastructure to make this a more livable city, to make this a city that's going to attract well-educated people, like, that's not a bad thing. Uh, the One of the interesting things is it's, it's like, I would say, 30% Walmart building, like, this new trendy campus all to do all, all along, like, modern urbanist guidelines with bike trails and all of that kind of stuff. But then the other 70% has been mostly philanthropic money from the Waltons who don't control Walmart anymore, but have so much Walmart money that they can do things like build 36 miles of bike trails and install a new fish market and that kind of stuff. And then all of that philanthropic money helps the town and that helps Bentonville become more attractive as a place to work and that ultimately helps Walmart. But it's this weird thing which it's hard to replicate anywhere else. It also suggests though if they are getting tax deductions for that philanthropic money that they are then using in order to make Bentonville better so Walmart can do better as a company, questions whether they should be getting some of those tax deductions. So many questions about (laughs) tax deductions. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger. 
offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. I mean, we could talk about tax deductions at the Mormon church if you wanted. <laughs> okay, I'm going to call an audible here and say, since we're talking about tax deductions from the Walton family, I want to do a quick segment on the tax-free nature of the $100 billion that a company called Ensign Peak Advisors has under management, which is more than the Harvard Endowment and the Gates Foundation combined. Ensign Peak Advisors is this company that no one has ever heard of, and it is basically a subsidiary of the Mormon church. And every year, every Mormon needs to give 10% of their income to the Mormon church. This winds up totaling about $7 billion. The Mormon church then spends about $6 billion of that $7 billion, paying pastors, sending people on missions, mowing the lawn, whatever they spend it on. And then they have a billion left over, and they throw that extra billion into this fund called Ensign, and the fund just sits on it and invests it. And it's this amazing fund, which gets, obviously, investment returns. They're in hedge funds, stocks, bonds, all of that kind of stuff. Plus, it gets an extra billion dollars of free cash every year. And the amount of money it spends on charity is zero. And yet, it is tax-exempt. And it just grows and grows and grows. And like the, the head of the Mormon church was quoted in this complaint that was just filed as saying that, well, yeah, we're kind of saving it up for the second coming. <laughs> Because apparently that you need a hundred billion dollars. Yeah, of like, like what? Because Boeing like, stock when God's going to be God like, uh, 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 <laughs> that fee to get in? So they're doing nothing with the money at all? Just sits there? It just sits there. And is there like, a long term plan like, of what they're, they're going like, to do? They're like, we might need it in case of emergency, but they they are very careful to always spend less than they take in every year. So there never is an emergency. So what right, is so the not. lawsuit now? What? So there's now this whistleblower lawsuit saying you have a nonprofit status. And under IRS law, a, a charitable nonprofit needs to conduct charitable activities <laughs> commensurate with its financial capabilities. And you clearly are not conducting any charitable activities at all, let alone right. ones commensurate with $100 billion. Therefore, you shouldn't have your tax exempt status. Therefore, you should have been paying taxes the whole time. And uh, where's that tax? You know, you, you, you owe the taxpayer a gazillion dollars. And, of course, the whistleblower is trying to get you know, 30% of the gazillion dollars. But it's it's interesting. The chances of the IRS actually coming out and saying you owe billions of dollars of PAC taxes, I think, are low because churches are always treated a bit differently. But it is kind of crazy that there's this massive gap in the tax So source. do they have – I mean, like, you know, if you're an endowment, like a university endowment, you have to spend a certain amount. You know? Correct. So, 5%. Right. Well, so if you're a foundational endowment, you basically need to spend at least 5% of your assets every year. Right. Now, so do they have any of those spending requirements? No. Hmm. Churches are basically exempt from that. So if this was just part of the – general money of the church and the church has like a bank account you know at Citibank and it happened to have a hundred billion dollars in it <laughs> um, it's like you know obviously this is not a situation where which happens very often and so it's hard to get uh, 
hard, clear view of the tax law here. But there is definitely a group of people who would give you the opinion, and clearly the Mormon church has these lawyers who have given them this opinion, that, yeah, that's just the church money, and the church doesn't need to pay tax on its money. Did the Catholic church have a similar stockpile of cash, and if so, do they do stuff with it? This is another really good question. (laughs) Um, What we know is that we don't know. Like, the fact is no one had a clue that the Mormon church had anything like this much money. And to be clear, the Mormon church has not confirmed that it has $100 billion. Um, It has no reporting requirement, or it it considers itself to have no reporting requirement. So up until the time that this complaint came out, no one had a clue that the Mormon church had anything like this much money, including, by the way, all the people who were tithing 10% of their income every year. A lot of people who just, like, you know, were really struggling to, you know, that's a large chunk of their money that they give to the church, which has $100 billion. And They should and be getting a dividend. Like, they, they should, should be, be getting, getting a dividend, dividend. Yeah, and exactly. then more people would be Mormon, <laughs> right. I bet, right? It's true, um, yeah. Is that Romney money in there? That's Romney uh, yes. money in there, absolutely. Dang. Yeah, 10% of Mitt Romney's. <laughs> yeah, he's like, that's most of it, right? <laughs> <laughs> so so one of the interesting questions, which hasn't been answered, is whether the IRS even knew about the existence of this money. Um, because I think that the way that the Mormon church worked is that they were under the legal advice that they didn't need to declare it. And I think a lot of other churches have been given that legal advice. And it's entirely possible that even the IRS, let alone the rest of us, literally have no idea how much money is sitting in various church slush funds. How much money do you think the Church of Scientology has? So much. They have all Tom Cruise's money probably also. Not all of it. A good chunk. <laughs> he probably has enough to you know, <laughs> tip the waiter He's like the Mitt Romney of Hollywood, right? And, and these... <laughs> These kind of, you know, it's it's inevitable under capitalism that large amounts of money are going to accumulate in places where they are not taxed. Right. And, I mean, this is honestly one of the reasons why Berkshire Hathaway is so big, because it set itself up as an insurance company and insurance funds are not taxed. And so it makes sense to put enormous amounts of money there because you, you get to not pay taxes on them. This is also, like, one of the reasons why Larry Page... Um, has put, like, billions of dollars into his personal foundation, and literally billions. Like, he's put $2 billion in. I think it's grown to about $3 billion, um, in total. The total amount of money that foundation has ever given to charity is $21 million. Now, as Anna was saying, that foundation as a foundation and not as a church has an obligation to spend 5% of its assets on charitable activities every year. So what does Larry Page do? He just takes a chunk, like a 5% chunk of the assets, and he throws it into a donor-advised fund. And the donor-advised fund gives no money to charity, doesn't ever need to give any money to charity. And presto, like everything is tax-deductible, or or tax-free, rather. I don't quite understand that because it's not like he gets to... it's not like he gets to spend the money he puts into his foundation. So why doesn't he just pay the taxes? Like, uh, what's the benefit of well, not paying the taxes? But the money's the tax- going to be able to grow, continue to grow, and he's not going to have to pay on the gains, but, right? But yeah. what does he do with the— like? Is he, gets it- to, he gets to—like, his heirs get to inherit the foundation and control the foundation. And eventually, but at some point— they still don't get the money. It's still— They can, they can, they can pay themselves a salary from the foundation. Uh, you know, the foundation—foundations provide a bunch of, like— useful, gainful employment and purpose to a bunch of, like, nth-generation gazillionaires. You can go work at the foundation and get a huge salary forever and all your heirs forever and ever on this money that just sits there, basically. Yes. It keeps growing. Yes. And how does this relate to the Trump Foundation? 
Well, the Trump Foundation just paid a $2 million fine for being not charitable at all, basically. But it sounds like the standards are so low that the Trumps really, really screwed up incredibly to, like, get dinged for that. Also, the chances of the Trumps getting dinged for that were he not, like, this highly polarizing political right. figure. A tiny Trump would totally have got away with that mm-hmm. if if he hadn't decided to run for president and even probably become president. Mm-hmm. I think even if he just run, he would have still got away mm-hmm. with it. It's amazing what you can get away with in this in this sector. No, but I mean, it's it's an important point when you're kind of talking about, you know, the, the need for potentially more spending and more tax revenue. And, and th- we do have these portions of the economy where we just have like just massive, massive, massive amounts of money are just simply not taxed. And it's the, this is the kind of part that I think people don't talk about as much that they probably should, because I mean, I mean, I understand to a certain point, like if you have an institution that's actually doing something, like at least if you're a university and you are in theory actually like you know educating people, I have a little bit more sympathy for the fact that okay, at least you're actually doing something. But a lot of these don't even do anything. Well, I mean, and it's not just nonprofits and charities. Like the NFL is a tax deduct, yes. is a tax free, untaxed organization. Yeah, that's inexcusable. There's no reason for that at all. You know, last year we wrote, we put together this thing called the Slate 90, which was a list of the, the biggest revenue tax-free organizations. And most of them were not charities at all. You know, they're, they're like large businesses that somehow managed to, you know, get tax-free for some reason. It's it's this huge loophole. But like the Mormon church just looks like it's way bigger than any of them. And no one knew. And people knew it had property. People knew it had like $35 billion of property. No one knew it had $100 billion of like investments in you know, Bridgewater. <laughs> um, but I mean, it makes sense. It is I such mean, a like, good yeah. point that you were making before, though. Like you have all these Democratic candidates coming in and saying, I want to do this new tax or that new tax. It's like, can we just fix the system that we have now? Can we make it harder for the Mormon church to just stockpile right. money that doesn't get taxed? Can Abolish we- all like tax-free institutions. Certainly get rid of the charitable deduction, but way beyond that, just make everything that is currently tax-free a taxpayer. Every university, every hospital, every charity, every insurance company, make them all pay taxes. And then, like, if if there's, like, a public interest purpose to make them uh, capable of continuing to do their business and they can't do their business because suddenly they're faced with this massive tax bill, then subsidize them. Mm. Take some of that tax money and give it back to them as a clear subsidy and say, we are paying you this clear subsidy so that you can do your job and make it transparent. Don't do it like behind the scenes in the tax code. No, I mean, I think that makes a lot of sense. When you're talking about economists and they, and they talk about kind of best practices in terms of tax policy, it's very often this idea of, you know, kind of a lower rate, but a broad base. Mm-hmm. And then this kind of thing. I mean, that, that, that does make or a lot of sense. Or even keep the higher rate and a broad base and then a bunch of like subsidies, which go back to the entities that need it if they're charities or hospitals or universities or anything like that. Make it explicit. Hello, I'm Imi Harper. On the slow newscast from Tortoise, I tell the story of how a Hong Kong billionaire was silenced. I got bombs thrown into my house. I got people came here, ransacked my computer. And I, I got people fractured me. I got this and that, but I'm safe. And what it reveals about the freedoms Hong Kong no longer enjoys. Listen to Hong Kong's Rebel Billionaire on the Slow Newscast, wherever you get your podcasts. Let's have a numbers round. Oh, right. Yeah. 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 Emily? Yes. Do you have a number? I have a number. What's your number? 17. Ooh, what's 17? 17 is the number of Russell 3000 firms who have 
all-male boards of directors. And that's a good thing because it's down from 93, which was the number in September 2018 before California changed its law and required companies to have a woman on it, on their boards. And the law worked. So now um, the number is so wait, you're saying way that, down. You're saying that like a good 70 or so of those 93 were in California? No, I think some companies, there were a bunch in California and then some companies just did it. The S&P 500 <laughs> is down to zero now as well. That happened last year, I think. I think you're right. Yeah. yeah. But there are still these holdouts, these 17 holdouts. And I think, um, and in the story, I think they, uh, the Wall Street Journal asks a couple of the holdouts and instead of like defending themselves, they're like, we're working on it. So, I mean, there's very little company pushback yeah. on this I, law. I work for a company with an all-male board of directors. This is very, very common among VC-funded yes. companies. These are public companies. And so. and even my company, which is VC-funded, is like, we're working on it. Yeah, I, I everyone's talk, working I on it. I talked to a Russian company that told <laughs> me that when you're talking about ESG things, we're like, yeah, we know we have issues with hiring women, but we're totally working on it. Like, I'm not even joking. I feel like it's very easy. Like, it's not a hard fix. Like, there are some things that companies... They, they claim to be doing and they'll never get it done, like closing their pay gaps or like hiring more female executives. But this is like a very concrete, fairly simple thing. Like just put a woman on your board or maybe two. Like it's not that hard and How they hard can do it, it and like avoid a lot of criticism and it doesn't really hurt them in any way. So it's kind of like the easiest, mm-hmm. lamest, but no brainerest thing you can do. Axios. My, <laughs> <laughs> My number is 80 million. 80 million locusts per square kilometer. So we are we have this. <laughs> no, is, this is this a biblical thing? <laughs> no, is this a, is, like, what's the minimum you need for it to be a plague? That is a very good question because right now we are actually at the level. It's called an upsurge. It has not yet reached the level of plague. Ah. Um, so yeah, right now in Ethiopia, I think in Eritrea and the border in Pakistan and India, and also in Somalia, you're having these massive locust infestations. And I mean, and these are horrible. It's something. Because they eat, like, just so much. I mean, they could, like, one swarm can, like, consume as much as, like, 2,500 families would eat in a year. I mean, they're devastating. Absolutely devastating. And one of the things they've said, too, is they think climate change could also be related to a little bit to what we're seeing now. Also, what happened in Yemen. So we can kind of blame MBS for this. Like, apparently, that's where the Ethiopian swarm came from because there was, like, stagnant water. So it's legitimately, like, a really big problem. And I'm only hearing it covered on the BBC. What's the... Is what, there a cool how do, picture? How do you fight? If there's a cool picture, then everyone will cover it. Yeah, it's, yeah. So I, how do you fight I, the plague of locusts? I mean, I think part of it. Well, actually, okay, this isn't funny, but it's a little funny. Is that you had? I think it was in Ethiopia where people were trying to shoot them. <laughs> Turns out that doesn't work Aww. with guns. Guns. And bullets? Yes. <laughs> I mean, eighty million per square. That's a lot of bullets. A lot of bullets. <laughs> what about those tennis rackets with the electric spark <laughs> in it? You can kind of. Yeah. No. I mean, I mean, I think a lot of it is you know pesticides, and I think part of this there was also some issues with I think where there were certain areas where if planes couldn't fly. And then that was part of the problem because then they weren't able to release the pesticides. And then that's also in itself a problem when you have just massive pesticides. I mean, this is a it's a major and it is one of those things that when you say locust, people think of like John the Baptist and like the Bible. Like you don't think of like, no, this is actually a problem. It's like I think it was like one tenth of the world's population is affected. Like it has and can be affected by locusts. Like it's a big problem. The Mormons should use their money to fix the locust problem, which is like vaguely biblical. Agreed. Agreed. That's a good use of $100 billion. <laughs> I think I think that a bunch of smart people with $100 billion could probably work out how to fix the locust problem. Yeah, let's get Bill Gates on this. Agreed. Or, or whoever the head of the Mormon church is. That Mormon guy. That Mormon I'm guy. I'm sure it's not a lady. Um, it's, it's probably a fair guess. <laughs> <laughs>
My number is 25, which is the number of years it took for All I Want for Christmas is You <laughs> to become the Billboard number one top selling single at Christmas. It was released in 1994 and it has of late ever since streaming became part of the Billboard 100. It has been doing a little bit better every year. And then finally this year, the best Christmas song in the history of Christmas songs has finally reached the number one position that it always deserved but spent 24 years not quite achieving. I actually had a a good conversation about this on Slate's Culture Gap Fest. They (laughs) devoted a segment to uh, Mariah Carey's song, which I'm, you, Felix, I just want you on the record believe is the best Christmas song? It is the best Christmas song. Okay. I don't know if I'd say it's the best Christmas song of all time, but I would say it's the best like Christmas song of the last 70 years. <laughs> so wait, what was what predates that? I don't know, like Silent Night? I mean, it's definitely better than Jingle Bells. Um, it's better than Jingle Bells. Run DMC actually, has Jingle actually Bells a, a really good horrible Christmas history. song. Run DMC. Oh, yeah? Oh, yeah, yeah. They, that is a good Christmas uh-huh. song. <laughs> Christmas time in Hollis, Queens. Yep. Yep. I mean, you know, there is there is a case to be made for the Pogues, but ultimately Mariah Carey has to win. It's relentlessly catchy. Ever since I yeah. listened to the Culture Gap Fest segment, it's in my head. As soon as you said, muh, <laughs> it started just playing. So with any luck, we have now put an earworm into the minds <laughs> of every single Slate Money listener, but at least it's a good earworm. Yeah. Yes. Yes. So, happy holidays, everyone. Happy holidays to everyone. Um you can't get away from Mariah Carey this year or next year or for the rest of your life. <laughs> this is just going to never go away. But it could be a lot worse for something which will never go away. Like Locust. Like Logan. <laughs> <laughs> and with that, we'll have one more um, special episode with Tim Harford next week on Slate Money. And then we will be back with you in January. Many thanks to Jasmine and Molly for producing. Many thanks to our mysterious hosts for hosting us. We're not meant to thank them, but they have been very, very nice. And we will talk to you next week on Slate Money. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. 
but there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. 